Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Glad to have you with us. Today, as we record these words, uh, it is the 4th of May, popularly celebrated as Star Wars Day in our culture. May the 4th be with you, as they say. But uh, back in this galaxy, uh, May is the month of Mary. And we kicked off the Marian month this last Sunday, May the 1st, uh, which uh, in 1955, Pope Pius XII made the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker to celebrate St. Joseph as the patron of laborers. Work not, you know, work is not a punishment for man. God gave Adam work to do in the garden before the fall. Work has a, a, a dignity and so forth. And uh, Pius XII wanted to bring that out uh, contra communism, right? According to Father John Zuldorf on his blog the other day, he said, uh, in contrast to what we see now in the church, to create counterplay against the rise of communism, popes of the early and mid-20th century invoked St. Joseph, described in this Sunday's gospel as a tecton. That's the Greek word, uh, which actually means a, a builder of, uh, in wood and stone, which is uh, typically translated as carpenter. He said, Pius XI of Happy Memory in 1937 wrote, We place the vast campaign of the Church against world communism under the standard of St. Joseph, her mighty protector. To counter the communist celebration of May Day, and that's where, you know, on May Day in in the old Soviet Union, they used to uh, give everybody the day off and and then uh, uh, compel them to go downtown and stand there and, you know, wave a flag while they marched the army past them. So you got to celebrate or else. Uh, but to, to counter the communist celebration of May Day, uh, Pius XII declared that same one May to be the feast of St. Joseph the Worker. He said, try to imagine that today. And I believe his words, try and imagine that today. Clearly, Father Z feels that uh, uh, contemporary Catholic churchmen have by and large gone soft on communism. And he... Uh, produces as Exhibit A the words of Archbishop Sorondo, a uh, Francis appointee, who said, and I quote, Right now, those who are best implementing the social doctrine of the Church are the Chinese. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. Father Z says, I don't imagine that the late great Ignatius Cardinal Kung or the very much alive great Joseph Cardinal Zen would agree. And, you know, obviously he's uh, correct. But on to happier things. Uh, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about one aspect of the gospel for uh, the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker later in the program. But uh, uh, right now, uh, you know, I, I would point out that long before communism, long before the introduction of uh, St. Joseph the Worker, long, long before our culture would produce something like Star Wars Day, Catholics traditionally celebrated the 1st of May in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary. In fact, the whole month is dedicated to her. Uh, Back in 2015, I was contracted to give a series of talks at a retreat in Germany at at a uh, a medieval monastery, Etel Monastery, in Etel, uh, Bavaria. Bavaria, of course, uh, traditionally very Catholic and absolutely beautiful. Uh, These beautiful, pristine hills and, and forests and uh, flowers everywhere, and, you know, the, the very, in Etel especially, is that very quaint uh, Bavarian architecture. I remember uh, when they called me to do 
the retreat, my wife looked up the monastery on the internet and saw all these pictures. And I'm going, oh, you know, I'm going to fairy tale land. <laughs> Quite literally, it's that, you know, my, that Northern European heritage it really struck a chord with me. And I said, well, you know, you have to come. And the people were, they were, they were very gracious about allowing her to attend the retreat. Uh, although obviously we had to pay her airfare. But the thing is the, the retreat uh, fell during the week where uh, April turned to May. And on the 1st of May, uh, they, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a kind of miraculous statue of the Blessed Virgin and Child that was found where the monastery was, uh, was uh, founded, you know, where it was built back in the 1300s. And, you know, it's kept on the high altar, but they were, they were going to have a procession and all the pilgrims were going to, uh, were going to join in the procession. Unfortunately, uh, Bavaria being a place where there's actually four seasons, it rained pretty heavily that morning. And so they had to cancel the procession, but the monks were kind enough to actually bring that statue down from the high altar and to the foot of the sanctuary and allowed the pilgrims to go up, you know, kind of one and two at a time to, to venerate this uh, image of the Blessed Virgin. It was very, very powerful. And, and also, as it cleared up later in the day, there was a lot of just, you know, there was cultural stuff going on. You had a, a young men in the traditional, you know, lederhosen with the little hats with a feather in it, and they were, you know, uh, singing traditional songs and doing the dances and, uh, and all of this in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And it just, you know, and, and what are we doing? We're, we're celebrating a, a movie from the 70s, <laughs> you know, <laughs> here in our culture. I think we, we've lost something. You know, back in uh, in Europe, in the Middle Ages, in, in England, uh, it was traditional on the 1st of May to go maying, or in England they would say to go a-maying, uh, which is uh, the people would go out into the woods and look for mayflowers, may blossoms, which are these beautiful little white blossoms that grow on the branches of the hawthorn bush. And so you can see there's this great symbolism uh, for the Easter time of the Blessed Virgin Mary and the suffering of Christ, that you have these, these beautiful blossoms in the midst of the thorns. And they would collect these and, and uh, decorate their homes, and, and most especially the church, with flowers. Right? It's springtime, suddenly there's fresh flowers. And uh, you know, after the, the long, cold winter, they were able to have fresh flowers in the church again. And of course, I, the, the one thing I think that, that has survived, uh, you, know, you, you see this at Catholic schools and parishes, uh, is the May crowning. You know, we homeschooled our kids. I remember one year, you know, we would always do the, uh, privately do the crowning of our own statue, the Blessed Virgin. We have a statue of Our Lady of Grace about, you know, it's a little over four feet high in a, in a grotto near the entrance of our home on the outside. And uh, one year, you know, we invited all the homeschool families to come over, and I, I bought a copy of the, uh, the order for uh, crowning a statue of the Blessed Virgin, and we had a priest come, and we, you know, we sang the hymns, and he did the whole liturgy, and, and blessed the statue, and we did the crowning with the, you know, the, the crown of fresh flowers on the, the head of the Blessed Virgin. It was very, very moving and powerful. And, you know, thinking about this uh, got me thinking that we've really kind of lost a lot of the Marian traditions. A lot of them have fallen away in, in the years after the Second Vatican Council. And, in fact, now I wasn't Catholic, and you know, I became Catholic in the middle '90s. So I, you know, I wasn't uh, uh, didn't have a, a dog in the fight during the the years directly after Vatican II. But you know, I've heard the folks tell me that um, that some people really believed that Vatican II discouraged Marian devotion. In fact, our own Terry Barber told me uh, not that long ago that 
as a young man in the 1970s, he would go into the church to pray the rosary, and people would look at him askance and even say something. He said, you know, a, uh, people would say, that's, that's an old woman's prayer. Or, or, you know, the very popular, didn't you know that, or don't you know that went out with Vatican II? You know, we don't, we don't do that anymore. And naturally, this is nonsense. Lumen Gentium, the uh, dogmatic constitution on the church from Vatican II, presents uh, the traditional theology of Marian devotion and the, the traditional theology uh, of, of Mary and uh, presents her to us as the very model of the church. But, you know, Vatican II and um, Paul VI in his um, encyclical Marialis Cultis on, the, on devotion to the Blessed Virgin, they, they do warn against excess, you know, and, and extremes, if you will. Because de- devotion to the Blessed Virgin is a virtue, and like all virtues, it's on a mean. The virtue's in the middle, and you can sin against that virtue in, in two different ways, either by defect or by excess, so first off, you know, you, uh, if you had no devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary at all, that would be a sin of defect because Mary's entitled to a great deal of devotion. And Vatican II rightly places her as the highest in heaven after the persons of the Trinity. In fact, it, it, it is right to say that the Blessed Virgin has no equal, that all persons are either above her, in the case of the, the, the persons of the Trinity, or below her, meaning all men and angels, including the saints and angels in heaven. All right, so, so to have no devotion to the Blessed Virgin is a sin of defect. On the other hand, though, there's another extreme which would place Mary virtually on the level of the divine, uh, you know, and, and to, to attribute a, a divine nature to Mary, that, that, you know, to grant her a, a, an equality with God obviously uh, violates, I mean, it's a heresy, and, and it violates the, the truth about the humanity of the Blessed Virgin, that however exalted she is, and she is greatly exalted, however great her virtues, and her virtues are great, no matter how powerful her intercession, Mary remains a human being. She is a creature of God. And when we pray to her, we are not asking her to answer our prayers as if she were divine. You know, rather we're asking for her intercession with God. Uh, Pray for us sinners, we say. Uh, I actually ran across um, this quote from uh, St. Louis de Montfort. He said, You never think of Mary without Mary thinking of God on your behalf. Neither do you ever praise and honor God without Mary praising and honoring God, God in union with you. Okay? So Mary, highly exalted, powerful intercessor, but it would be an, an, a sin of excess to attribute her a a divine power. So what does the Second Vatican Council actually say? It tells us in Lumen Gentium that as the sinless virgin mother of God, Mary is the model of the church, in the same sense that the church is called to be without stain, holy and blameless, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. So it's therefore, it it was appropriate for God to predestine Mary to pattern his ideal for the church by preserving her immaculate and unstained. And that's no nonsense. Hey, lots more when we come back. Uh, No Nonsense Catholic, right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us.
Welcome back, round two here on No Nonsense Catholic, Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. Coming up later in the program, we are going to talk about, uh, we'll actually look at both sides of the question, which is why the Church offers communion under two species, both the host and the chalice, uh, to the laity, uh, at least under certain circumstances. And it being the month of Mary, why it is, pardon me, the Church teaches Mary was a perpetual virgin, when the Bible, in the very gospel for the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker, uh, clearly says that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And uh, time permitting, uh, since it's still Easter, a little more on the risen Christ, this from Benedict Sixteenth. But first, uh, May 1, May the 1st, is, uh, was already a feast day before it was made the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker. Uh, the Feast of a Saint who is also particularly relevant for our times, and I'll tell you why, and that Pope is, or that Saint is Pope St. Pius V. Pius V was the Pope who marshaled the Holy League for the defense of Christendom in the 16th century uh, to, you know, defend them from Muslim, Muslim invasion. He was the Pope who uh, ensured the miraculous victory of the Holy League at the famous Battle of Lepanto, by launching a rosary crusade, launching a rosary crusade to inspire the faithful to beg the intercession of the Blessed Virgin for the defeat of the enemies of Christ. Uh, Pius V was the Pope who declared St. Thomas Aquinas a doctor of the Church. He was the Pope uh, after the Council of Trent, and therefore the one who carried out the Council's desire to restore the liturgy, quote, to the relative simplicity of the Fathers, unquote. This restored missal, right, the traditional Latin mass, was promulgated in 1570 with the document Quo Primum. Uh, Pius V made the Roman missal mandatory throughout the Latin rite of the Catholic Church, with the exception of those localities or, or groups who had a missal that used a missal that was more than 200 years old. And by restricting these optional missals to those um, from before 1370, Pius V ensured that the Mass would be free from the, you know, the heresies that had popped up in those 200 years and influenced the Protestant Reformation. Now, as you know, if you've been listening to this program for any length of time, this form of the Mass remains essentially unchanged, uh, remained essentially unchanged for 400 years until uh, Paul VI's imposition of the Novus Ordo Missae in 1970 after which the old form became known as the Tridentine Mass, or the that's after Tridentum, which is the Latin for Trent, or simply the traditional Latin Mass. And all arguments to the contrary, the traditional Latin Mass was never abrogated, and, and use of the, the last edition of the traditional Mass, the, the 1962 edition put out by uh, Pope John XXIII, was always permitted, at least in principle, for private celebration of the Mass, and then in the year 2007, uh, in the, you know, uh, Benedict XVI provided uh, for the public use of the Mass, now called the Extraordinary Form, in his Motu Proprio Samorum Pontificum. And as you also may know, uh, in July of 2021, Pope Francis issued yet another Motu Proprio, Traditionis Custodis, which attempts to abrogate Samorum Pontificum and reinstate the restrictions um, on the celebration of the 1962 Missal. Now, I'm not going to go into all of that today, but I suspect that you will be as happy as I am to discover that on Sunday last, on May the 1st of 2022, the feast of Pope St. Pius V was celebrated 
in uh, the Holy Mass in the extraordinary form in the Sistine Chapel of Mary Major in Rome. So Deo gracias for that. All right, and since we're talking about things liturgical, there's a couple of questions uh, that have been coming up lately regarding the communion rite in the ordinary form of the Mass, right, in the Novus Ordo. Now, prior to the the COVID lockdowns, uh, for years now, bishops here in the United States have been making a point of offering communion to the laity under uh, both species, both the host and the chalice. But since the reopening of the churches, uh, we've seen many of these same bishops abandoning the chalice and, and some even trying to restrict communion not only uh, exclusively to the host, but exclusively the host received in the hand. Now, obviously, the, these before and after positions uh, regarding communion are at odds. And now, I'm a no-nonsense Catholic, okay? I coined the term for a reason, and, I'm, and I am partial to the traditional Latin Mass. However, I have no animus towards Vatican II or towards the, the, the new Mass, for that matter. And there are, in fact, a number of things that I appreciate about the Novus Ordo Mise, one of them being the restored option of communion under both kinds. This was the norm in the Latin Church, uh, you know, into the the Middle Ages, although there were always uh, situations, pastoral situations, where communion was offered under the one species only. Um, And communion under both kinds, you know, continued in certain circumstances. The Knights Templar, for example, um, received communion from the chalice, at least on some occasions, certainly on uh, Holy Thursday, for example. Uh, And and full disclosure, uh, I'm basing a lot of this upcoming segment on um, an answer to the question, why do we have two forms of communion, um, by the late Father John Hampsch. You might remember Father Hampsch. He was a a Claritian priest, a Claritian missionary priest. He was a very popular, charismatic speaker and author, um, and I, I met Father Hampsch personally. We interviewed him on radio on EWTN, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, But maybe you don't realize that he was actually quite a talented apologist. So I'm basing some of my remarks on, on a response he wrote years ago. Uh, and in turn, he's basing his answer on the definition of the Mass given at, uh, in the Vatican II Constitution on the Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, uh, which is as follows. At the Last Supper, on the night when he was betrayed, our Savior instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. He did this in order to perpetuate the sacrifice of the cross throughout the centuries until he should come again, and so to entrust to his beloved spouse, the Church, a memorial of his death and resurrection, a sacrament of love, a sign of unity, a bond of charity, a paschal banquet in which Christ is eaten, the mind is filled with grace, and a pledge of future glory is given to us. That's from Sacrosanctum Concilium, uh, paragraph 47. And that definition, the last half, uh, especially taken largely from the office of Corpus Christi, which was composed by St. Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. Lest anybody think that this is a, a newfangled way of looking at the Mass. So here's the question. If it's true that we receive the entire Christ body, blood, soul, and divinity in the consecrated host at Mass, then what's the advantage in partaking also of the consecrated wine, which encompasses precisely the same features? Now, now I, I sense in this question a certain attitude of, you know, if it ain't broke, why fix it? <laughs> you know, after all, communion under one kind has been the tradition in the West 
for, for many centuries. <clears throat> and it was certainly not adopted without reason. So, so why reintroduce a practice largely abandoned since the Middle Ages? Well, first off, um, let me say the, the questioner's description of both species of communion being identical in substance, right, being, being the one undivided person of Christ, is correct. There isn't any difference or distinction of substance at all between the two consecrated species, right? Both contain the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. The only distinction, uh, according to Thomas Aquinas, arises vi verborum, according to the words, you know, by reason of the two distinct separating words of consecration. This is my body, this is my blood. So the distinction is linguistic and not substantive. And Father Hampsch bases his response on on the four essential aspects of the Mass itself, according to to Vatican II, which I just read. It's a meal, a memorial, a sacrifice, and a thanksgiving. So firstly, the Eucharist is a meal. It's often called the Lord's Supper because it was in the context of the Last Supper, uh, the the, uh, Paschal meal, the Passover celebration in which Jesus instituted the sacrament of uh, the Eucharist, and he used the typical Passover foods uh, uh, and drink of bread and wine, along with the precepts take and eat and take and drink. And this represents consuming spiritual nourishment, right? the food that endures to eternal life, as Jesus promised in the Eucharistic discourse at the synagogue in Capernaum back in John chapter 6. So since the Eucharist was instituted in the context of a meal, right, the ceremonial Paschal meal, the Passover meal, you would expect that as a meal, it would include not just food, but food and beverage. Hence, the Catholic Catechism says that receiving both species of communion is a, a better uh, uh, or more fully portrays the meal aspect of the Mass. In liturgical anticipation of the future heavenly banquet, which Jesus himself anticipated as he looked forward to sharing the communion cup in the coming eschaton, when I will drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So in Article 1390, the Catechism says that Christ is present under the species of bread alone, enabling one to receive all the fruit of Eucharistic grace. But, and I'm quoting now, since the sign of communion is more complete when given under both kinds, in that form the Eucharist, uh, Eucharistic meal appears more clearly. And, and by the way, this is the usual form of receiving communion in the Eastern rites, right? that they receive both uh, the consecrated uh, bread and the consecrated wine, often under uh, what they call intinction, where the host is, is dipped into the precious blood and then given to the communicant. Uh, I remember uh, some years ago, uh, Archbishop Kai of Happy Memory um, was visiting uh, here in Southern California, and he came to the Catholic Resource Center, and he we arranged to have him say Mass for, you know, the staff. We went to, a, this is before we had the Sacred Heart Chapel, we went to a, a local parish church, and, okay, I'm not going to say any anything, but um, the sacristan there, you know, informed the archbishop that since you're in the Diocese of Los Angeles, if you're going to have Mass here, you must offer communion under both kinds to the, you know, the, the uh, congregation. Now, Ar- Archbishop Kai, God bless him, he's the Archbishop of Thailand. This guy is like five foot nothing, 
and and not imposing at all. But he's an archbishop, okay? And he he said the Mass, and when communion time came, he said, I have been informed that uh, we are to, I am to offer communion under both kinds, so we will be receiving communion today uh, under the method of intinction. And this, this little archbishop came up to, they set up a Purdue, uh, you know, a little a kneeler, so that he could, uh, you know, he brought the chalice from the altar and, and, and dipped the host in it and placed it directly on people's tongues. So I doubt very much that it was the, the, uh, the liturgical ideal for Los Angeles at the time that we would all receive communion kneeling and on the tongue. <laughs> but that's the way it worked out. What I'm trying to say is, you know, don't try and outsmart an archbishop. Okay, when we come back more on this, why it is that we have uh, two forms of communion uh, in the church today uh, and um, you know, the controversy over whether it uh, will continue or not, as well as uh, the Brothers of Jesus, uh, the Risen Christ, lots more coming up on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, No Nonsense Catholic. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about receiving communion under both kinds. and uh, uh, A response uh, Father John Hampsch um, made um, referencing the four uh, aspects of the Mass as defined in the Second Vatican Council. Firstly, the meal aspect, which we just talked about. And now, secondly, that the Mass is a memorial. And why is that? Well, the Passover, of course, was a memorial of Moses as the redeemer of God's people from slavery in Egypt. And uh, during that first Passover, the angel of death passed over the houses where the doorposts and lintels had been marked by the blood of the lamb. Now, in the Last Supper, of course, uh, and and in the Passion and the Cross, you know, our Lord becomes um, the redeemer of us all from the slavery of sin. You know, we are re- and we are redeemed from the slavery of sin through the blood of the Lamb of God, right? And so Jesus proclaims in the Last Supper, do this in memory of me, right? It's not about Moses and the Exodus anymore. Now it's about the sacrifice of Christ. And he, he proclaimed that injunction in both consecrations, um, as Paul states in, in 1 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25. This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Or the, the, the old Douay translation would say, do this in commemoration of me. So it's in consecrating the, the bread and wine that the Eucharist's new covenantal and memorial aspects were established. And since the priest, following Jesus' command, confects two species— uh, you know, the, the host and the chalice in the consecration at every Mass, it would seem appropriate for the laity to receive two and not one species of communion. Now, this remains an ideal. You know, it certainly it isn't necessary, and it is not obligatory. If you go to Mass and they offer communion under both kinds, you know, no Catholic is obliged to receive communion under both kinds, with the exception, of course, of the celebrating priest. Now, a lot of traditional Catholics and uh, conservative uh, Catholics 
are of the opinion that there has been an undue emphasis on the meal and memorial aspects of the Mass to the point uh, that the sacrificial aspect of the Mass is downplayed or even denied, right? And this was the thesis of a 2009 book by some anonymous priests of the Society of St. Pius X, that the quote-unquote post-conciliar church no longer teaches that the Mass is a sacrifice. This, of course, is high-octane nonsense. Uh, and in my book, Confessions of a Traditional Catholic, uh, I included a kind of a lengthy refutation of that charge because it's clearly the teaching of Vatican II, and this is the third point, that the Mass is a sacrifice. And, and for our purposes here, that sacrifice is manifested uh, not just in the, in the celebrate consecrating with a double consecration, but in a lesser way by the laity receiving the double species of communion. You know, Paul emphasizes the sacrificial aspect of receiving communion when he says, um, in 1 Corinthians 11 again, in, in verse 26, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, that is to say, his redemptive sacrifice, until he comes. And then in referring to the chalice, Jesus speaks of his blood being shed for the forgiveness of sin, clearly framing the reception of, of the precious blood in the context of sacrifice. And, and Matthew's account of the Last Supper, uh, Jesus seems almost to mandate uh, the, the, the sharing of the, the cup of his precious blood to complete the, uh, the, the twofold sacrificial element of the sacred service. Drink from it, he says, all of you. Uh, and in the consecration, he emphasizes that it's not just his blood, but his shed blood, which implies sacrifice, which is the most important aspect of the Holy Mass. But even, even more importantly, there's, you know, there's a more basic reason for the liturgical um, wording of the consecration formula and directed to that twofold consecration of the host and the chalice. And that touches on the very basic theological reasons as to why the celebration of the Eucharist is called the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And unfortunately, an awful lot of Catholics today are not aware of this. That, you know, the Mass is not a repetition of the sacrifice of Calvary, you know, since Christ can only die once and, you know, he, he's resurrected, he doesn't suffer anymore. You know, as our Protestant friends keep reminding us, you know, when they object to us extolling the Mass as a sacrifice. And, and what they don't understand, and what I'm sorry to say far too many Catholics fail to understand, and what we must convince them of, is that the Holy uh, Mass makes present for us the once-for-all sacrifice of Calvary, sacramentally, just as Jesus made the sacrifice presence, present for, for the apostles at the Last Supper. It's not, it's not a repetition of, of the sacrifice. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us that Jesus' death, quote-unquote, on the altar, is a mystical death. You know, my old St. Joseph Catechism puts it this way, the holy sacrifice of the Mass is the perpetual unbloody sacrifice of the new covenant in which the sacrifice of the cross is made sacramentally yet truly present. And now, amidst the controversy and the misunderstanding, we mustn't forget what actually caused Jesus' death. It was the shedding of blood from his body, the separating of his uh, body and his blood. And that's why at the Last Supper and you know all the subsequent pre-celebrants, need the two separate consecrations in each Mass, 
you know, to consecrate the bread and the wine, symbolizing the separation of Christ's blood from his body. The shedding of blood, which was the, the, was the very atoning sacrificial cause of our redemption, as Paul says in, in Romans 3 and, and elsewhere. So when consecrated, the bread and wine are no longer two things but one. One and the same uh, person in two forms uh, or appearances. So just as the human soul is totally present in every part of the human body, so Jesus is totally present in the least particle of the consecrated host and the least drop of the consecrated chalice. Only, you know, the, the host, not the unseen Christ, which it, which it, you know, has been changed into, can be broken or divided. You know, both species are, are simply one person under that double appearance. So Christ in, in the Blessed Sacrament is one person uh, under a, a multiplied substantial Eucharistic presence. That's what, that was Father Hampsh's words. That's why I, I borrowed from this. Is that, that's, I, I haven't found that term elsewhere. But his point being is that, uh, that his substantial presence is multiplied not merely on the altar, but throughout the whole world, in every existing consecrated host and every chalice of, of the precious blood, consecrated wine. Hence, St. Francis of Assisi taught his friars to pray, We adore you, O Christ, here and in all the tabernacles of the world, and we bless you, because by your holy cross you have redeemed the world. You know, that, that was the beginning, really, of Eucharistic adoration. So each species, uh, the appearances uh, of bread and the appearance of wine, comprises, after the consecration, the entire person of Christ, that is, his body, his blood, his created human soul, and his uncreated divinity. So, so being identical in substance, there's no difference or, or distinction of substance at all between the two consecrated species. The only difference, as we pointed out, St. Thomas says, is uh, a difference in appearance and in the formula of consecration. So the, the external differences uh, you know, are, are just that. Fourthly, the Mass is a form of thanksgiving, the very meaning of the word Eucharist, right? When, when Jesus consecrated the wine at the Last Supper, uh, as Scott Hahn uh, conjectures, it was the cup of Todah in Hebrew, or in Greek, Eucharistia, the third cup of the Passover, which is called the cup of thanksgiving. And Jesus incorporated a prayer of thanksgiving into the very act of instituting both species of that sacrament. And that's recorded in all of the Synoptic Gospels and in 1 Corinthians. So just, and, and just as he did before feeding the crowds with the miraculously multiplied loaves and fish, right? That he, that he does it in context of giving thanks to God. And, and that's another, you know, it's, it's a, that's obviously prophetic or, or typological. It's, it's a foreshadowing of the Holy Eucharist. And, 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 and another antecedent for the Mass um, being thanksgiving is the sacrifice of thanksgiving that is mentioned in the book of, uh, in the Psalms, Psalm 116. You know, liturgically, in David's time, priests were assigned to give thanks to the Lord, okay? So, aside from everything that's been said here about the double species of the Eucharistic presence, there are other forms of the Lord's presence that are not Eucharistic, right? The Eucharist isn't always available to us uh, through the hours of the day, but we are assured of other types uh, of the presence of Jesus that are with us at all time. Um, 
because he promised, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that promised, you know, post-ascension presence of Jesus is with us today. His, um, his Emmanuel, God with us presence, and it takes several forms. The Holy Eucharist, of course, uh, and his indwelling presence in, in us, right? Uh, that what Our Lady of America calls us to be especially devoted to, and which we read about in John 14, where Jesus says, whoever loves me will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. And then we have his communitarian presence, as, as he says in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. And then we have what Father Hamsch uh, referred to as the altruistic presence, all on Matthew 25. Amen, I say to you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brethren of mine, you did for me. So Christ then is also present in uh, the recipients of our acts of charity. But what we call his real presence, the unique Eucharistic presence of the living Christ, is the only form of his presence that is physical, that is corporeal. The Blessed Sacrament isn't just a spiritual presence. Christ isn't present, you know, with the bread and wine, uh, like Luther said. The, the bread and wine, their substance becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. And that's why he said, I am the living bread who comes down from heaven. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. I'm going to finish this up and then talk about the brothers of Jesus when we return. Right here on No Nonsense Catholic, you're listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you with us. Stay tuned, and we will be right back after this. All right, to finish up our uh, discussion of um, receiving communion under one species or both species, I, I guess the thing to remember is simply whether whether you receive um, Christ in the host or you receive the host and the chalice, in either case, you are receiving uh, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ under the appearance of bread and wine. That's the thing that's the most important to remember. I'll give the final word to Father Ham. She said, to sustain the spiritual life in the world, talking about all the different ways that Christ is present, most especially in the Eucharist. He said, the Lord must remain in the world and available to us, that is, present to us. Our response to that presence, namely the degree to which we are contemplatively aware of this divine loving presence and respond to it in love, tells us the degree to which we have attained personal spiritual maturity. And that's no nonsense. Okay, I mentioned uh, St. Joseph the Worker as the feast that was celebrated in the extraordinary form on the 1st of May, this past Sunday. And in the gospel for um, the feast of St. Joseph the Worker in the extraordinary form, it's taken from Matthew 13, 54 through 58. He came to his hometown and he began to teach the people in the synagogue. They were astonished and wondered, where did this man get such wisdom and these mighty deeds? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not James and Joseph and Simon and Judas his brethren? And are not all his sisters here with us? Where then did this man get all this? And so they took offense at him. 
But Jesus said to them, A prophet is always treated with honor except in his hometown and in his own house. And he did not work many mighty deeds at his miracles there because of their lack of faith. As far the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, it's uh, interesting that this is one of the classic passages that fundamentalist Christians use against the Catholic Church. Why does the you know why do Catholics teach that Mary remains a virgin throughout her life when the Bible clearly says Jesus had brothers and sisters? You know, and it's not the only place, right? There's, there's like ten different places that mention the brethren of Christ, and and this is one of those objections to Catholicism that I call Catholic kryptonite, because so many Catholics are unable to to give an answer. People say, well, "How come you say and it's like, oh, "Gee, I don't know." Well. We're going to spend the rest of the program looking at the several reasons, okay? First off, the word brother. As Inigo Montoya says in The Princess Bride, you keep use in that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Uh, the point is that the term brother in Greek, it's adelphos, has a broader meaning than brother from the same mother, okay? Obviously, it can mean a, a biological brother. That would be its primary meaning. But it can also mean an extended relative, even even um, a close friend or a spiritual brother. You know, I knew a gal who married a fellow from Lebanon, and and she said it would drive her crazy when her husband said, "Oh, my brothers are coming over tonight," because that might mean his you know his two actual uterine brothers, right? That, that they were coming, but it also might mean that she could expect a crowd uh, of extended family with uncles and cousins and male and female. Uh, because they use, you know, if he's from the Middle East, and they use that term. Because in, in the Hebrew of, of the, the, the Old Testament, the Greek, there, there wasn't uh, a separate term for a close relative, you know, unless you use a, a circumlocution, like uh, the, the, the son of my father's brother or whatever, right? But that's clumsy, so they use the word uh, brother, um, Adelphus certainly has a broader meaning than biological brother. Take Genesis 13, verse 8, for example. Here the word brother is used to describe the relationship between Abraham and Lot. Now, we know that they're not biological brothers, but uncle and nephew. You know, but it says in Genesis 13, 8, So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Okay, meaning that they're related, that they're in a, a relationship that's not father and son, but related. Now, because of the um, this kind of broad semantic range of brother, we can rest assured that when St. Paul writes, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, that doesn't mean that Mary had 499 other children, okay? <laughs> uh, also, the, the brothers um, that are mentioned um, in the Scriptures uh, are never once referred to as the children of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Christ is, right? John uh, chapter 2, Acts chapter 1, referred to Christ as the Son of Mary, but no one else is referred to that way. Also, there are other women in the Gospel that are, that are called Mary. Miriam was a common name. you got three Marys at the foot of the cross, so uh, uh, James and Joseph, also called Joseph in, in some translations, uh, they're called uh, Jesus' brothers in Mark 6, uh, and they are the children of a Mary, they're not, just not the mother of Jesus. Because when we read St. Matthew's account of the crucifixion, 
He says, there were also many women there looking on from afar who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Okay, so Mary, the, the, is the, this mother of James and Joseph, is not the Blessed Virgin Mary, but uh, uh, Mary of Clopas, who was, you know, the woman who was identified as being at the cross with the Blessed Virgin. Also, we have, you know, the witness of the early church. I think that's so important because, as my father used to say, the stream runs closer, or the stream runs clearer, closer to the source. And there is a consensus among the fathers of the church uh, regarding the brothers of Jesus and the perpetual virginity of Mary. Um, The earliest explanation of the brothers of Jesus um, is actually found in a document called the Proto-Evangelium of James, which was written around uh, early first century, or second century, rather, maybe 150 A.D., and it tells us a lot of things that are part of our the tradition of the Blessed Virgin, that that she was a consecrated a virgin since her youth, and um, that you know she was presented in the temple when she was uh, young and and was a handmaid of the Lord stayed there until uh, you know she was a teenager and and those traditions about Mary a lot of them come from the Proto Evangelium of James. Now, obviously, this is you know it's not inspired; it's not part of the sacred scripture, but it was written very early. And and we can see that it was influential on the on the tradition, or it was following the the existing tradition, one or the other, and uh, it presents Saint Joseph as an elderly man, a widower that had other children, all right, who was chosen to be Mary's spouse for the purpose of of guarding and protecting her, and and particularly respecting her vow of virginity. Now. Um, well, the Proto-Evangelium of James was very influential in the early church, source of many traditions about Mary. Uh, and, and I would point out artwork. You know, if you look at traditional representations of St. Joseph, he's almost always portrayed as an older man. And it's because... The joyful mysteries of the most holy rosary of the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's interesting. What a beautiful voice. The joyful have. mysteries direct our... <laughs> Thank you very much. A little technical glitch there. Um, but the Proto-Evangelium of James, yes, and um, and the thing is that uh, most scholars today reject the idea that G- uh, Joseph was an older man and a widower, and rather uh, believe that he was a young man who was also vowed to virginity. And and this seems to accord with what Saint Jerome said. Um, you know, he's answering the the some fourth century heretics who denied the perpetual virginity. He said, you say that Mary did not continue a virgin. I claim still more that Joseph himself, on account of Mary, was a virgin, so that from a virgin wedlock, a virgin son was born. Okay, So he's, not only was Mary a perpetual virgin, but that uh, Joseph was a virgin as well. Uh, St. Athanasius, in his discourse against the Arians, uh, said, therefore, let those who deny that the son is from the father by nature and proper to his essence deny also that he took to true human flesh of Mary, ever virgin. Right? So the Arians said that Jesus wasn't really divine. He said, well, then, then you may as well deny that, that he wasn't the son of Mary, but he refers to as Mary, ever virgin. Right? That she remained a virgin uh, before and after the birth of Christ. Right? So, you know, she was still, she was still a virgin after his birth and remained one perpetually, ever virgin. 
And then uh, Pope St. Leo I, a.k.a. Leo the Great, in the 5th century, he says, The origin is different, but the nature alike. Not by intercourse with man, but by the power of God was it brought about. For a virgin conceived, a virgin bore, and a virgin she remained. And this is what the Catholic Church still affirms today. That Jesus, and this is from the Catechism, paragraph 501, Jesus is Mary's only son, but her spiritual motherhood extends to all men whom indeed he came to save. The son whom she brought forth is he whom God placed as the firstborn among many brethren, that is, the faithful in whose generation and formation she cooperates with a mother's love. So if you're looking for the brothers and sisters of Jesus, look no further than the Catholic Church. We are the brothers and sisters of Jesus, and that's no nonsense. Okay, finally, I have it here someplace. Um, we're talking about Holy Communion. The, the, the Christ that we receive in Holy Communion is the risen Christ. And I just wanted to remind you that it's still Easter, that the celebration continues. And I just wanted to share you quickly some thoughts from Pope Benedict XVI about um, the risen Christ. Okay, it's back in 2007. He said, Christ is risen. The liturgy devotes to this immense mystery not only a day— it would be too little for such joy, but at least 50 days. That is, the entire Easter season, which ends with Pentecost. The Risen One repeats it to us today not to be afraid to become messengers of the proclamation of his resurrection. Those who encounter the Risen Jesus and entrust themselves docilely to him have nothing to fear. This is the message that Christians are called to spread to the ends of the earth. And he says, humanity today expects from Christians a renewed witness to the resurrection of Christ. It needs to encounter him and to know him as true God and true man. And then he says that the wounds of the risen Christ, uh, through the wounds of the risen Christ, we can see the evils that afflict humanity with the eyes of hope. Jesus has conquered sin and death. As St. Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Jesus has not taken away evil and suffering and death, but has defeated them at their very core by his grace, and he has overcome evil with love, a love that brings a peace that the world cannot give. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, is no nonsense. All right, thank you for being with us this week. Looking forward to doing it all again next Wednesday. Um, you're listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and we are so very grateful for all your support, both spiritual and financial. Until next time, may God richly bless you and your family.